Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, the best podcast in the world. Today's episode is brought to you by a massive fly, which is on the roof of my office, and it might do some buzzing during the episode, so just if you hear a fly buzzing around, it's probably not in your house. Um, we're talking about chapter 36 of, of Human Bondage. Philip got a new gig. What do you think of these new characters? Swim said the mumma fishy said, I perceive some social commentary in this chapter. We learned in the previous chapters that accounting was being pushed as an occupation for a gentleman, which was why it was acceptable for Philip to take it up. Mr. Carter tells Philip that they went want gentlemen in the business to raise the profession. Philip meets Watson, a fellow articled clerk, who is the son of a rich brewer. He dresses and acts like a gentleman, fond of sports and the hunt. He has been to Oxford and condescends to Philip. But Philip thinks it is ironic that a school, at school, they looked down on brewers. I hate the word brewers and brewery. I can't say it. Times, they are a-changing, and I think this chapter reflects that. The Victorian age came to an end in 1901 with the death of Queen Victoria. The Edwardian age came officially to an end in 1910 when King Edward died. And as we all know, the First World War hastened change pretty soon. This profession won't need the cachet of a Philip, who is the Victorian definition of a gentleman. The author began of human bondage in 1911 and published it in 1915. In this chapter, we see the old restrictions and boundaries are breaking up, never to be the same. This is very reminiscent of... um, of, um, Can you hear that? Fly away, little guy. Fly away. There's a whole world out there. You don't have to be in this room. Okay, I'm going to throw something at it. Shit. Let's just continue. Um, oh, it stopped flying. It's still in the room, though. There, um, there, this all reminded me a lot of... Uh, Um, sorry I've got a fly I've got fly brain it's very hard to focus Um, what am I watching Downton Abbey Downton Abbey is the show I've been watching Uh, and that's it's all the breaking up of the you know the high society of the aristocrats and so things like um, yeah having to be a gentleman to do a certain job is starting to go out the window and ushering in from then until the 20s is like when the slappers all came about and everything became cool. Jan Brunt said, so Philip is off to work. Flappers? Did I say slappers? I think I meant flappers. Wait, what are they called? Flappers. Flappers? Oh, now I can't remember which one's which. One of them's offensive and one of them's what they were called. Yeah, I meant to say flappers. (laughs) Slappers is Australian slang for a loose woman. Jan Brunt said, so Philip is off to work. My guess is he'll probably grow to, to despise his new office pretty quickly. He's not the type to be satisfied very long in any situation. You know, in the chapter, two chapters ago, when they described his new job, I, I felt my, like my stomach sink. Like, it sounds awful. It's my hell. Uh, and so, yeah, I had the same feeling. Like, yeah, he might be excited to have this new thing in his life start up, but I don't think... He's going to last long in that situation. Dickens readers will remember Chancery Lane as the setting of a good old, sorry, a good deal of novel bleak house. 
the probate case of John Deese versus John Deese is adjudicated in the Chancery Court, one of the various non-criminal courts of the time. As an American who's never listened, sorry, never visited London, I love being able to return to these familiar settings and imagine literary characters passing each other in the street. Philip always seems to be chasing a happiness that is somewhere else, says Intrepper. I wonder if he finds it by the end of the book. Hmm, that's a good thought. I wonder. I doubt it, knowing his author. Oh, we've got to stop comparing Philip to the author because it's only semi-autobiographical and it is fiction. And I keep trying to like figure out the ending based on what happened to the author and I don't think that's a good way to view a book. I'm Norwegian says, I don't like any of the new characters yet. Mostly, none of them have aroused my interest. I've taken a few accounting classes and Philip is in for a boring time. I'm still annoyed by the way the characters talk. You have the narrator with his clear and cool narration and then you get these characters going all Oi, governor, I quite fancy a cup of OT, I do. Um, annoyed by it. You know, I find it kind of funny. I think it's kind of amusing how British the dialogue is and then the narration is like British, but the dialogue is like British. Uh, let's have a look here. Okay, we've got another chapter coming up here. Chapter 37 goes like this. At first, the novelty of the work kept Philip interested. Mr. Carter dictated letters to him and he made... He had... And he had to make fair copies of statements of accounts. Mr. Carter preferred to conduct conduct the office on gentlemanly lines he would have nothing to do with typewriting and looked upon shorthand with disfavour the office boy knew shorthand but it was only mr goodworthy who made use of his accomplishment now and then philip with one of the more experienced clerks went out to audit the accounts of some firm he came to know which of the clients must be treated with respect and which were in low water now and then long lists of figures were given up him to add up. He attended lectures for his first examination. Mr. Goodworthy repeated to him that the work was dull at first, but he would grow used to it. Philip left the office at six and walked across the river to Waterloo. His supper was waiting for him when he reached his lodgings, and he spent the evening reading. On Saturday afternoons, he went to the National Gallery. Hayward had recommended to him a guide which had been compiled out of Ruskin's works, and with this in hand he went industriously through room after room. He heard carefully what the critic had said about a picture, and then in a determined fashion set himself to see the same things in it. His Sundays were difficult to get through. He knew no one in London and spent them by himself. Mr Nixon, the solicitor, asked him to spend a Sunday at Hampstead, and Philip passed a happy day with a set of exuberant strangers. He ate and drank a great deal, took a walk on the heath, and came away with a general invitation to come again whenever he liked. But he was morbidly afraid of being in the way, so waited for a formal invitation. Naturally enough, it never came, for with numbers of friends of their own, the Nixons did not think of the lonely, silent boy whose claim upon their hospitality was so small. So, on Sundays, he got up late and took a walk along the towpath. At Barnes, the river is muddy, dingy and tidal. It has never, it is neither the graceful charm of the Thames above the locks nor the romance of the crowded stream below London Bridge. 
In the afternoon he walked about the common, and that is grey and dingy too. It is neither country nor town. The gorse is stunted, and all about is the litter of civilization. He went to play every Saturday night and stood cheerfully for an hour or more at the gallery door. It was not worth while to go back to Barnes for the interval between the closing of the museum and his meal in the ABC shop, and the time hung heavily on his hands. He strolled up Bond Street and through the Burlington Arcade, and when he was tired went and sat down in the park or in wet weather in the public library in St. Martin's Lane. He looked at the people walking about and envied them because they had friends. Sometimes his envy turned to hatred because they were happy and he was miserable. He had never imagined that it was possible to be so lonely in a great city. Sometimes, when he was standing at the gallery door, the man next to him would attempt a conversation, but Philip had the country boy's suspicion of strangers and answered in such a way as to prevent any further acquaintance. After the play was over, obliged to keep to himself all he thought about it, he hurried across the bridge to Waterloo. When he got back to his rooms, in which for economy no fire had been lit, his heart sank. It was horribly cheerless. He began to loathe his lodgings and the long solitary evenings he spent in them. Sometimes he felt so lonely that he could not read, and then he sat looking into the fire hour after hour in bitter wretchedness. He had spent three months in London now, and except for that one Sunday at Hampstead, had never talked to anyone but his fellow clerks. One evening Watson asked him to dinner at a restaurant, and they went to a music hall together, but he felt shy and uncomfortable. Watson talked all the time of things he did not care about, and while he looked upon Watson as a Philistine, he could not help admiring him. He was angry because Watson obviously set no store on his culture and with his way of taking himself at the estimate at which he saw others help held him. He began to despise the acquirements which till then had seemed to him not unimportant. He felt, for the first time, the humiliation of poverty. His uncle sent him £14 a month, and he had to buy a good many clothes. His evening suit cost him five guineas. He had not dared tell Watson that it was bought in the Strand. Watson said there was only one tailor in London. I suppose you don't dance, said Watson one day with a glance at Philip's club foot. No, said Philip. Pity. I've been asked to bring some dancing men to a ball. I could have introduced you to some jolly girls. Once or twice, hating the thought of going back to Barnes, Philip had remained in town and late in the evening wandered through the West End till he found some house at which there was a party. The fly is back, by the way. Bloody fly. Uh, party. He stood among a little group of shabby people behind the footmen watching the guests arrive and he listened to the music that floated through the window. Sometimes, notwithstanding the cold, a couple came onto the balcony and stood for a moment to get some fresh air. And Philip, imagining that they were in love with one another, turned away and limped along the street with a heavy hurt. He would never be able to stand in that man's place. He felt that no woman could ever really look upon him without distaste for his deformity. That reminded him of Miss Wilkinson. He thought of her without satisfaction. Before party, parting, they had made an arrangement that she should write to Charing Cross Post Office till he was able to send her an address. And when he went there, he found three letters from her. She wrote on blue paper with violet ink, and she wrote in French. Philip wondered why 
She could not write in English like a sensible woman, and her passionate expressions, because they reminded him of French novels, they left him cold. She up, she upbraided him for not having written, and when he answered, he accused, excused himself by saying that he had been busy. He did not quite know how to start the letter. He could not bring himself to use dearest or darling, and he hated to address her as Emily, so finally he began with the word dear. It looked odd standing by itself and rather silly, but he made it do. It was the first love letter he had ever written, and he was conscious of its tameness. He felt that he should say all sorts of vehement things, how he thought of her every minute of the day, and how he longed to kiss her beautiful hands, and how he trembled at the thought of her red lips, but some inexplicable modesty prevented him, and instead he told her how his new rooms were and his office. The answer came by return post, angry, heartbroken, reproachful. How could he be so cold? Did he not know that she hung on his letters? She had given him all that a woman could give, and this was her reward. Was he tired of her already? Then, because he did not reply for several days, Miss Wilkinson bombarded him with letters. She could not bear his unkindness. She waited for the post, and it never brought her his letter. She cried herself to sleep night after night. She was looking so ill that everybody remarked on it. If he did not love her, why did he not say so? She added that she could not live without him, and the only thing was for her to commit suicide. She told him he was cold and selfish and ungrateful. It was all in French, and Philip knew that she wrote in that language to show off, but he was worried all the same. He did not want to make her unhappy. In a little while, she wrote that she could not bear the separation any longer. She would arrange to come over to London for Christmas. Philip wrote back that he would like nothing better, only he had already an engagement to spend Christmas with friends in the country, and he did not see how he could break it. She answered that she did not wish to force herself upon him, and it was quite evident that he did not wish to see her. She was deeply hurt. She never thought he would repay with such cruelty all her kindness. Her letters her letter was touching, and Philip thought he saw remarks of her tears on the paper. He wrote an impulsive reply, saying that he was dreadfully sorry and imploring her to come, but it was with relief that he received her answer, in which she said that she found it would be impossible for her to get away. Presently, when her letters came, his heart sank. He delayed opening them, for he knew what they would contain, angry reproaches and pathetic appeals. They would make him feel a perfect beast, and yet he did not see with what he had to blame himself. He put off his answer from day to day, and then another letter would come, saying he was ill and lonely and miserable. I wish to God I'd never had anything to do with her, he said. He admired Watson because he arranged these things so easily. The young man had been engaged in an intrigue with a girl who played in touring companies, and his account of the affair filled Philip with envious amazement. But after a time, Watson's young affections changed, and one day he described the rupture to Philip. I thought it was no good making any bones about it, so I just told her I'd had enough of her, he said. Didn't she make an awful scene, asked Philip. The usual thing, you know, but I told her it was no good trying any of that sort of thing with me. Did she cry? She began to, but I can't stand women when they cry, so I said she'd better hook it. <laughs> All right. 
Philip's sense of humor was growing keener with advancing years. And did she hook it? He asked, smiling. Well, there wasn't anything else for her to do, was there? Meanwhile, the Christmas holidays approached. Mrs. Carey had been ill all through November, and the doctor suggested that she and the vicar should go to Cornwall for a few for a couple of weeks around Christmas so that she should get back her strength. The result was that Philip had nowhere to go and he spent Christmas Day in his lodgings. Under Howard's influ- Hayward's influence, he had persuaded himself that the festivities that attend this season were vulgar and barbaric and he made up his mind that he would take no notice of the day, but when it came, the jollity of all around affection of all the jollity of all around affected him strangely. His landlady and her husband were spending the day with a married daughter, and to save trouble, Philip announced that he would take his meals out. He went up to London towards midday and ate a slice of turkey and some Christmas pudding by himself at Gutty's, and since he had nothing to do afterwards, went to Westminster Abbey for the afternoon service. The streets were almost empty, and the people who went along had a preoccupied look. They did not saunter, but walked with some definite goal in view, and hardly anyone was alone. To Philip, they all seemed happy. He felt himself more solitary than he had ever done in his life. His intention had been to kill the day somehow in the streets and then dine at the restaurant. But he could not face again the sight of cheerful people talking, laughing and making merry. So he went back to Waterloo on his way threw them in Westminster Bridge Road, bought some ham and a couple of mince pies and went back to Barnes. He ate his food in his lonely little room and spent the evening with a book. His depression was almost intolerable. When he was back at the office, it made him very sore to listen to Watson's account of the short holiday. They had had some jolly girls staying with them, and after dinner they had cleared out the drawing room and had a dance. I didn't get to bed till three, and I don't know how I got there then. By George, I was squiffy. At last, Philip asked desperately, How does one get to know people in London? Watson looked at him with surprise and with a slightly contemptuous amusement. Oh, I don't know, one just knows them. If you go to dances, you soon get to know as many as you can do with. Philip hated Watson, and yet he would have given anything to change places with him. The old feeling that he had had at school came back to him and he tried to throw himself into the other's skin, imagining what life would be if he were Watson. Alrighty, there we go. There's another chapter for you. I hope that fly wasn't too irritating. I don't know if the microphone was picking it up or not, but it was going berserk. Uh, Thanks for listening. I'll see you uh, tomorrow.